brothers and sisters and friends who have joined us this morning. I'm wondering if I could just eke out one more, He is risen this morning. Amen. That never gets old. We actually celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday as we gather as a local church, but there is for sure something unique and special about Easter Sunday when Christians from around the world gather in a unique way to meditate on the meaning and the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just visiting, um, we typically go through, straight through, books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, We also normally take a break for Easter. We'll go through a resurrection text. But it just so happens we've been tracking through the book of Romans, and we figured out how to um, make this Sunday kind of land on Romans 8, 1 to 11, which we think is a great text for us to meditate on on this Resurrection Sunday. Our text this morning, as I was reading through it, reminded me of a story about a man by the name of Harry Mendenhall. He was a wealthy attorney living in Portland, Oregon, had plenty of money to chase down every desire that he had. He lived for pleasure. Uh, He thought that he had everything that he needed, except uh, he realized that there was something that was lacking. But he eventually heard the message of Jesus Christ and believed. And just weeks later, he was sitting in a church service, listening to a sermon, much like you are this morning. And he told the pastor afterwards, after the sermon that focused on the new creation, I liked your sermon, but it was deficient. I know that a lot of you are going to want to come up this morning after the service and tell me my sermon was deficient. I already know that. Like, we're always just like painfully trying to present the beauty and glory of Christ. Uh, so you don't need to do that. It's already, it's already in my head. But he invited this pastor to dinner to explain. Isn't that a great way to ex- invite somebody over? Hey, your sermon was deficient. Why don't you come over to my house and eat? And so the pastor showed up at his house. It was a beautiful house overlooking this river. And immediately he began to leave, lead him around, showing him through window after window a, a number of things that were surrounding the house. He pointed out uh, a beautiful flower and started detailing the glory and the majesty of it. And then he looked out another window and he saw a tree. And he said, just look at the glory of this tree. And then, have you seen this river? And he just went on and on. And finally, he just stopped and he looked at this pastor and he said, your sermon, your sermon was lovely and it helped me greatly. But you forgot when you were talking about new creation to talk about new eyes. I got new eyes when I came to Christ. For 50 years, I lived for two things, money and sex. And that's all I ever saw. It's all I ever looked for. I never saw a sunset, never saw a flower, never saw a tree or a river. But now I have new eyes. And everything is new because of who Christ is. Now, coming to Christ shifted this man from the power of the flesh, bound by sin, not to see even the glories of this present creation, much less the new creation that was awaiting him. But he had been transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ that was led by the power of the Holy Spirit. He saw the world differently after coming to Christ. See, treasuring Christ freed him to enjoy God's good creation rather than being enslaved by it. Now, I think our text this morning explains this shift of heart. Romans 8.1, if, if you're just jumping in and you're reading this verse, and you have been tracking through the book of Romans, and you just got out of chapter 7, it might feel startling and abrupt. 
There in chapter 7, Paul is picturing the Christian life as one of war and fighting against indwelling sin as we await the future resurrection of our bodies when Jesus comes back. See, the life of the Christian is in between our conversion of coming to Christ and the consummation when Jesus returns. We've already been freed from the power of sin and death, and yet these bodies of ours, they still live under the shadow of Adam. Christians still die the first death and still experience indwelling sin. But praise God for Romans 8. It is as though Paul, in the midst of this mire and muck and smoke of war from chapter 7, decides to scale a mountain to get above that smoke of war, and he is inviting us to come up with him above the gloom of the battlefield to catch a glimpse of the future glory that has invaded our present reality. He wants us to see that we are not just left to indwelling sin, that there is something more that is here for the believer. A new day has arrived. A new now that Paul speaks of arrived with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, this is the big idea that you can write down. We're going to be working from this. The fact that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian. That's a right now reality. Now, we see this first in verse 1, where Paul says there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now Romans 8.1 is, I think, the thesis sentence of Romans 8. It is amazing what he begins to unpack out of this reality that we read in 8.1. And as we read it, I, I want to encourage you to slow down. I know you're hungry for Easter lunch, but I want to give you an appetite for God's Word. Don't rush it. Let's read it slow. Just one verse. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the best news you'll ever hear if you're in Christ. And we want to meditate on these words. We want to let these words marinate in us. We want them to saturate our souls. If we understand this, everything we do changes. Now, in this verse, signals the most dramatic turn in the history of the world. Now assumes a then, a time before the now. Every human once stood condemned. Paul used this word for condemnation back in Romans 5.18 where he said, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. I looked up this word for condemnation in a Greek dictionary, and it said that it does not denote merely a pronouncement of guilt. You were condemned, you were guilty. But it goes beyond that. It, it also adds to it the adjudication of punishment. You were guilt, and here is the result. This is courtroom language. God is the just judge who looked down on a fallen humanity, that is, all of us apart from Christ, and declared all people to be guilty and handed them over to the consequence of their sin, which is enslavement to two deaths. The first death, which is our physical body, when it dies, but that's not when we're done, that's just a preamble to the second death, 
which is the death that we read about in Revelation 20, a death that was meant for fallen angels and for all unrepentant sinners who don't turn to Christ. It is described as a place of eternal conscious suffering. Now, how did humanity become condemned? Well, when the first human Adam sinned, his one trespass, we all sinned with him and inherited his sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, just think about it. With the swing of a gavel, the just judge pronounced every single human being guilty and condemned them to death. Every one of us was born on death row, awaiting a death that is only a preamble to the greater second death. If you think about it, this life prior to Christ was the long last meal for humanity enslaved by sin and death, awaiting the fire. We had no future, no hope, only condemnation. Quite different than what we find in Romans 8.1. God so loved us that he sent his son Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place to satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. He made a way for sinners to be made right with God. Christians have been justified by faith alone. If you are justified, you are not condemned. Now can you imagine being on death row when your day comes to walk that green mile? And at the last moment, Jesus enters in to your cell, takes your orange jumpsuit, and says, I am dying in your place. And he does. He satisfies the, just, the judge's just penalty in full. And exchange says, you are now a free child of God. All of the resources that he has at his disposal are yours. That is quite the change. Now, in Romans 8, 1, announces that new state of affairs where there was only condemnation for everyone all the time. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't want you to miss how profound this statement is for all of us. Christian brothers and sisters, Paul is talking about the certainty of our futures at the final judgment. When he is talking about condemnation, he is not just talking about a present reality. He is talking about a future reality, the day when we will all come before the just judge. And he says on that day, there is no condemnation. And that is such a beautiful, amazing, powerful reality and declaration that it actually invades the present experience of your now everyday life. See, Paul did not say that there is no condemnation for now. Important distinction. He says there is now, no more condemnation. Paul's not just talking about confidence before God today. He's talking about confidence on the last day. In fact, I love what one New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner, said about this. He said, the future deliverance from death has invaded the present world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? It, there is a sense in which that deliverance from death has invaded our very experience today. That changes everything. Paul did not say there is no condemnation for now. He says there is no now, therefore, no more condemnation. That's good news. I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of what Paul does not promise here, though. I think sometimes when we think about the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
We might imagine that he says something different than what he actually says. Have y'all ever had that experience? You can ask my wife about how that happens all the time. I think I said one thing, but I said something else. She's got a much better memory than I do. Notice that Paul does not say there is therefore now no fighting of indwelling sin. He doesn't say there is now no therefore no more divine discipline for disobedience or no feeling of condemnation or self-accusation that, that, that you begin to question even yourself if you truly love God. He doesn't say there's now therefore nothing for which a believer deserves to die for in this first death. No, this broken world is full of fights, loss, and deep sorrows. But if we are in Christ Jesus, our futures are incredibly bright and rest secure. That's the hope that he gives us. But catch this, faith unites us with Jesus such that we are in Christ Jesus and have property in him. We are so with him, it's so we have property with Christ. But Jesus also gives every Christian the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in verses 2 to 4. These are amazing verses. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh so that Christians can walk according to the Spirit. Now, you'll remember in Romans 1, there's a lot of I, I this and I that, where Paul is speaking of his own experience, and I think as well as the experience of every Christian. So you'd expect him in verse 2 to, to continue to talk about me or himself, but instead, notice what he says in verses 2 to 3. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Paul is contrasting here the law of the Spirit with the law of sin and death. He's already shown that fallen humanity can't obey God left to himself. And Paul couldn't be more clear here. Weak in flesh, it cannot please God. See, God, in verses 2 to 3, does what the law and humans themselves could not do for themselves. God is actually entering in to help a people who are helpless. God sent his son, and and, and I'll take note in these verses, his pre-existent son, so that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Uh, When you read that, that statement really threads a theological needle in some ways that you might not realize what's going on. Notice when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin that he didn't show up in the flesh of sin. As though he partook in sin, like the Ebionite heresy that was taught early on. Nor does he say that he was in the likeness of flesh, as though he didn't really have a body, like he was a hologram or something, like docetism taught early in the church as a heresy. No, this phrase tells us a couple of things about Jesus, that he was truly and fully human. He, he was human-human, the most human-human to ever live, and yet sinless in every way. Now, I take for sin here that's added on to the end of that to actually mean something that, that might not be so clear, but I take it to mean in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And Jesus came as in the likeness of a, a sin offering. He was offered as a sacrifice on behalf of of his people, to pay the just penalty of the sins of his people. 
See, Jesus flipped the script on sin in the flesh. You'll remember that sin used the law to bring condemnation to all of humanity. But here we find that God is actually condemning sin. Did you catch that? God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. Now the point here is, is that God powerfully saves sinners who are powerless to save themselves. God did what we could not do. Isn't it good news that we have a God who helps those who can't help themselves? That's great. That's the best news. Like, I need a God who helps the helpless because I can't help myself when it comes to salvation from my sins. Uh, this, this always reminds me of a scene. I, I've told y'all before that uh, G and I, we, we like to watch a show called Blue Bloods. It's, it's about police officers. And uh, the main chief, Frank Reagan, uh, has a relationship with a priest. And on a couple of different episodes, he comes to the priest and he says, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And every time the priest kind of shrugs and goes, yeah, you know, everybody knows that's true, as though it's a truism or something. Hear this. That's not just a lame gospel. That's a false gospel. God sent his son to die for people who could not help themselves. There was no other way. Those in Christ Jesus are free from the power of sin and death and under the law of the Spirit and life. It is a new day for the helpless who put their faith in Christ. Now, verse 4 tells us what Paul's purpose in all of this is. Verse 4, he says this, It was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the purpose, it, it highlights two things at least. First, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are justified before God and no longer stand condemned. And second, the purpose of that justification of the cross and all that God did there is the transformation of his people through sanctification, meaning that we are progressively transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Jesus Christ until one day we are promised we will actually behold Jesus face to face and on that day, we are told we shall become what we were made to be. We shall be fully like Him. See, the Holy Spirit that is given us in Christ makes us holy. If you have met the Holy Spirit, if you have put your faith in Christ, and you have received the Spirit, and that is the only kind of Christianity the Bible talks about, then you will be different. You will be more and more like Christ until Christ returns. Now, I know there's some who, who give this idea that there's a type of Christianity, a sort of brand of Christianity, and it comes in a lot of different forms, but it's this idea that you can put your faith in Christ and you can have him as your Savior, but that you can kind of go on living as is without any change in your life, consider that really kind of like fire insurance that's going to keep you secure on the last day. Well, let me just be super clear about the nature of what Paul is saying throughout his letter. That is no biblical, God-inspired, spirit-inspired, and strengthened kind of message. That is a human, worldly, earthly, fleshly message. No, if, if we have met the Holy Spirit, then it's going to change us. It's, 
kind of like an illustration that my brother Malachi uses all the time in our membership classes. He, he talks about the person that goes outside and uh, comes back in and he's a little bit late and the people are like, where, where were you? And he says, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I was outside and I was walking across the street and I got hit by an, an 18-wheeler. Like just, and then kind of drug me for a little bit, but I, I got away and I'm back and I'm good. I think that people would think you were a liar if you said that happened. And your clothes weren't wrinkled, there was no blood, like you were alive. Like people would just think like that did not happen. Why? Well, because if you get hit by a Mack truck, it's going to change you in some way, right? Like you just expect that. Well, in the same way, think about it. If you meet the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the eternal God who created everything by the very words of his mouth, you would expect that that would bring about change in your life. And not only that, if we're told here in the scriptures that that was his purpose, then you better believe that God is going to bring about the things which he promises. So what does this not mean? I think it's important just to realize that. Let me me clarify what this doesn't mean. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out, it doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle with sinful desires. Romans 7, I believe, shows us that they do. I don't think that it means that Christians don't sin. In fact, 1 John 1, 8-9 tells us that if anybody says that they're not a sin, or that they haven't sinned, that they're actually deceiving themselves and that the truth is not in them. But those who confess their sins will find that God is faithful and just both to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. We need to know that, that Christians, it doesn't mean that Christians don't sin because we have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that Christians will reach perfection before Jesus returns. That will not happen until we receive our new Bodies which are free from sin and death completely. We still live under the shadow of Adam. It does not mean that Christians will not be sanctified starting in different places. You know what I'm saying? Or moving at different paces. Like, you get that? Like, some of us are saved in different places. Some of us grew up going to Christian schools and a Christian home. And then we can't even really quite remember when we became a Christian. We just know that Jesus died for our sins. There are others that come in out of the darkness. I've talked to folks in our membership interviews who were literally high on drugs and came to Christ and everything changed. We come in different places and, and, and also we move at different paces. I mean, our, our past, the way that God has made us, um, the sort of human frailty might dictate or change the way that, that we mature in Christ. Having the Holy Spirit also doesn't mean that Christians don't have major setbacks. Sometimes even to the point where we find in scriptures there are some Christians who are disciplined by a church who are actually handed outside of the church in their membership and then later come back and are restored. Major setback. And yet all to the glory of God in their sanctification process. Yet we see here that Christianity is so much more than a fire insurance policy according to Paul. Christianity, hear this, it's about a transfer of citizenship. Citizenship under the power of sin and death in our flesh to the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Don't miss verses 5 to 11. They are telling us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has everyday implications for the Christians. Uh, Notice third in verses 5 to 11. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells the Christian. 
The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he indwells every Christian. Now, the four in verses 5 to 11 that begins it there, I think it's telling us that this is the ground of verse 4. All verses 5 to 11, it's grounding what he has said in verse 4. This explanation for how Christians keep the law and walk according to the Spirit. Don't miss this. As we read through this, this is important to understand what he's saying. Paul's not telling Christians in Rome not to walk according to the flesh here. You should not walk according to the flesh. He's going to say that in a minute. But here, Paul's describing the identity of someone who is either of the flesh or of the Spirit. I take it that Paul's helping us to identify that the ultimate nature of someone who is either of the flesh or of the Spirit, can be identified in these ways. Now, do do you see what he's doing? He's just describing the difference between those walking according to the flesh, which is everyone apart from Christ, and those in Christ who have the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you see, these are two different kinds of people. Now, I think that's important for understanding how we read this. Notice first, he highlights the complete inability of the flesh to please God in verses 5 to 8. And he just, he isn't letting it go. And in verses 5 to 6, he says this, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to see the, set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, the word for mind here is is mindset, and it speaks of the basic direction of a person's will. So, it it talks about the way that you are setting your desires. Every person, this is describing the nature of what they treasure in their heart. What do you love and live for? not talking about what you say you live for, but in your heart of hearts, what do you love and live for? What drives you? See, every person's manufactured default setting is driven by the flesh mindset. Uh, That's the identity of everyone outside of Christ. uh, Everyone in the flesh treasures something other than Christ. That's the identity of everyone outside of Christ. They treasure the good things that God created above their creator God. They use the good things that God has created for us in ways that he did not intend. One way to think about it is those in the flesh bend their lives around their flesh and the desires of the flesh rather than bending their lives around the will of God. They're not manipulating themselves or changing themselves to look more like Jesus. But instead, what they're trying to do is actually bend their lives around how to get more of this thing that they treasure above everything else, including God. And it might not just be one thing. But verse 6, notice how he jumps from the heart of a person to the ultimate destination. He says, this is where those in the flesh and those in the spirit are going. 
who treasure these things in this way. I'm not even talking about the way they walk yet. It's just, if they love this, this is where they end up. What you treasure in your heart, it has eternal implications. Do do you hear that? Like, the thing that you love, it is taking you somewhere. You You might not even know that you've bought a plane ticket, but you're on your way. And it's not just that a flesh mindset leads you to death, physical death. But as we said before, it, it's speaking here, I think, of eternal consequences of that second death. A spirit mindset leads to eternal life and peace with God. Now, listen close. Paul is unpacking the identity of every person outside of Christ in verses 7 to 8. He's getting more clear. They don't have peace with God. Do you, do you see that in verses 7 to 8? Christians have peace with God. Those in the flesh, they don't have peace with God. For the mind that is set on the flesh, he says, is hostile towards God. Hostility is not peace. Hostility is the opposite of peace. It is fighting against God. Why? For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you catch that? The flesh mindset of those outside of Christ... Hostile to God, no peace. Now please just listen close. You don't have to be an angry atheist like Richard Dawkins who blames Christianity and religion for all of the world's ills to actually be hostile towards God. I know that sometimes when I share Christ with others, they're like, I'm not mad at God. I just don't really much care about him. According to the scriptures, God created you, and you don't have a right not to care about him. According to the cross, the cross of Christ, where God sent his son to die for you, he he let his eternal perfect son, who was sinless, die in your place. You don't have a right not to respond to God's means of having peace with him. You don't even need to think of yourself as hostile to God. There is a kind of passive atheism that simply treasures this world and ignores their creator and redeemer. You you could be hostile towards God and not even being willing to recognize it. But Paul's highlighting the inability of someone with a flesh mindset to submit to God's law. They, They can't do it. Even if they wanted to, they can't, and they don't even want to. And those in the flesh, they they can't please God. The the law, even you yourself, are powerless to save yourself from the death that awaits you. That's what Paul is saying. But notice how Paul addresses Christians in verses 9 to 11. It's so much different. He says, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There is a power at work in you. Look at verses 9 to 10. This is what he says. You, however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now this is breathtaking. Paul has just told us that every Christian wars against indwelling sin in Romans 7. But here Paul says, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. 
That, that same spirit in you. Now, Roman, Roman Christians fought over their Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And, and, and throughout history, there were wars between Jews and Gentiles. They were fighting over all kinds of things, ethnic and, and covenantal. But God says now that Christ has come, humanity is actually broken up by him into those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Like, that's the real question. Are you in Christ or are you in the world, in the flesh? And even more profound, if you're in the spirit, the spirit is in you. Now, that is, that is shocking news. Now, hopefully, if you're not a Christian, that's not shocking news. But if you think about in redemptive history, that is shocking news. Ezekiel spoke of a day in chapter 36 where he would give his spirit to people so that they could obey God. And here we're already beginning to experience the partial down payment of that promise. More is yet to come when Jesus returns. But did you also know that the Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ? Think about this. God the Father. God the Son. God the Spirit. Coming to indwell you so that you can make it to the end. So that you can live a righteous life. So that you can love God. So that you can fulfill all that he made you to fulfill. So that you can be the human that he made you to be. To glorify him rather than rebelling against him. See, Christ in us means our physical body is dead due to sin. Our physical body is wasting away. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I take the spirit is life because of righteousness. To mean that the life that the spirit produces now is in the lives of the believers. He is producing new life already. Now, we will not always be saddled with these weak, corruptible bodies. Played basketball last weekend. There was a day when I could grab the rim. I had to take three days off after the game. Not proud to, to say that to you today. But there were pains in places I didn't know I had. It's a weak, corruptible body. It's passing away. It's not what it used to be. But one day, one day the life-giving spirit will overcome sin and death through the resurrection of our bodies. Like not just our spirit like sort of floating off into something that we don't know yet. We will have real bodies in a new heaven and a new earth with pleasures that we cannot imagine with senses that are unencumbered by sin. What a day! Resurrection Sunday declares it's about to get really good. We don't know when it's coming, but we're ready. See, believers die because of sin, but are raised because of righteousness. Now, righteousness here is speaking of the righteousness that is credited to our account based on Jesus' cross work that we receive by faith. Now, Tom Schreiner explains that in verse 10, what he's saying is, is that believers will be raised from the dead by the life-giving spirit on the basis of the righteousness of God even though their bodies are dead because of sin. We still get new bodies. So verse 10 says our future bodily resurrection is promised by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Resurrection Sunday, we are looking back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which declares all of the promises and benefits that are good for the Christian who has put their faith in Jesus. But you know what it also does? It looks forward. We're coming too. New bodies, new heavens, new earth. That's what this day declares. But until then, 
Here's what verse 11 says. You're not alone. Again, read this slowly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and Christian, he's assuming that he is, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that twice, we read it slowly, but twice, Paul repeats that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you know why people repeat things? Do you know why people repeat things? It catches your attention. It focuses you. He says, I want you to make sure you don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. And then Paul says, because Jesus was raised, Jesus will also raise up our mortal bodies through his indwelling spirit on the last day. What a promise. Paul wants us to see that the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to Christians is that we too will be raised from the dead on the last day. And that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is already, already in the here and now at work in us, transforming us, shaping our loves and our desires more and more to the will of God. More and more we look like Christ in the way that we live until one day, physically, we look like Christ with our new bodies. Now, <clears throat> Augustine broke up humanity into four states, and I, I have a, a picture here to kind of give you, uh, hopefully, uh, a visual of the way that redemptive history has been working out for us. Pre-fall man, Adam, he was able to sin and able not to sin, able to not sin. Post-fall man, Adam after he sinned and all humanity after him was able to sin but unable to not sin. We can't, we can't be righteous apart from Christ. But what about reborn man? Those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is able to sin and able not to sin. That's good news. That's, that's a new day. That's different. We can please God. We couldn't please God prior to Christ, but in Christ we can please God. But there's a greater day that's coming, glorified man, when Jesus returns. And then we will be able to not sin. And catch this, unable to sin. Long for that day. I can't wait for that day. How about you guys? You want to sign up for that? Like we won't want to. We get what we want, which is to please God. We want what's best for us. Now let me just draw some applications from this as we close. First, if the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead... He can transform you. Look, I know what it's like to struggle with sin, to struggle with fear, shame, to struggle in your walk with Christ and feel so powerless. Did you know that even pastors feel that sometimes? Like you just even wonder, like, am I praying right? Like what is it that I, am I, how do I, how do I beat sin? How do I love you as I ought to? And you can feel beaten down and and if you're not spending regular time in prayer, regular time in the Word of God, regular time seeking to put sin to death and try to live under God, to be obedient to Him, if you're not doing those things, then more and more, it would not surprise me, because I found this in my life, you will feel defeated. Less and less will you feel the power of the Holy Spirit and sense it. doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't with you, but there's less and less a sense in which you 
sense the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and working through you. Christian, if you feel overwhelmed by indwelling sin, be reminded that the Holy Spirit indwells you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit in you means that God is for you against your sin. God has not left you in your sin, Christian. You are not on your own. You are not by yourself. You might have people who you thought loved you and abandoned you, and maybe God's like that. God does not abandon you in your sin. He is with you and for you, so much so that he has given you his spirit, which he will not take away from his people. That's the new day that we live in in the new covenant. God put sin and death to death by sending his son to the cross. And because Jesus lives, you don't have to sin anymore. We can fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, sanctification takes grace-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. Now, we didn't get to verses 12 to 13 this morning, but everything is really preamble to verses 12 to 13 where he says, put sin to death. Before you can do that, you need to know what it looks like, the difference between being a person of the flesh and a person of the spirit. But sanctification, it takes grace-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. Put your back into holiness. Put your back into loving Jesus. Don't listen to the lies where people say, oh, it's not a big deal if you obey Jesus. Like, you know, he'll work it out in the end. No, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you love what God loves. Third, if you're suffering from pain or facing physical death this morning, I I just want to give you encouragement. The, The new body that you long for is coming. It is coming to you. You will be relieved of your pain and your suffering. You will be relieved of your your despair. You will receive a new body. There is joy that's coming that goes beyond anything that you can imagine. And I really believe this. Hear me, brother and sister. If you're struggling this morning, if you're suffering, I love you. And I want you to know that there is coming a day when you're going to experience joy and glory that is going to make even the great pain that you're going through right now seem so small. And I know you can't imagine it, but that day's coming, and that's the faith of the believer. There's a day coming when we will receive resurrection bodies. They will be so much different than these bodies that we're left with right now. Fourth, if you're not a Christian, we are grateful that you're with us this morning. And I know I've been talking a lot to Christians. But if you're not a Christian, what what that means, and what this means for you is that, that you haven't put your faith in Jesus, and you're still condemned according to God's word. But here's the good news. So many of us in this room were condemned. All of us were once condemned. But now, many of us are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to catch this. Uh, I'm super encouraged that a number of you have invited your friends to come to church today. Friends who don't know Jesus, love Christ, who are interested in learning about him. Uh, here's my guess, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, somebody invited you, somebody who has put their faith in Jesus, who loves Christ, whose life has been changed, who is in process, they have not been perfected yet, they're on their way, they're waiting for Jesus to come, and they're being led by the Holy Spirit until then, but there is something that has changed so significantly that they look at the world anew. They see beauty that they didn't see before. They see meaning and purpose that they didn't see before. And they wanted you to get in on this deal. They wanted you to come and hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, who he is and who he can be for you. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. 
You can find me. You can turn to your friend and say, I want Jesus. And we'll talk to you about what that looks like. Here's another thing. I know that like it's Easter and you're really hungry, but can I give you a homework assignment? You came, I'm, I'm just guessing, with someone that you love. Would you ask them to tell you more about Jesus? Would you tell them the problems that you're having, the struggles that you're having with putting your faith in him? And would you even, if you're willing to go this far, I know this is three things, but even ask them to pray that the Lord would, by the power of his spirit, raise you to newness of life and give you a desire to know and love him. Like, let's do that this morning. I would love if we're about to celebrate a baptism, and I would love if some weeks from now, a number of you were baptized and you came to Christ on Easter Sunday. What a day that would be. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for your son, whom you gave to die for us. But Lord, he is not dead anymore. You raised him. You raised him from the dead. And he lives even now, interceding for us. And he has given us his spirit so that we might worship you as we ought. And so God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would raise our affections. Raise our affections towards Christ. Help us to remain faithful until you raise us up on the last day. And Father, I pray for those who might be here who are at least interested in Christ. Father, I pray that you would meet with them, that whatever words are shared with them from your people would actually come with the power of your spirit. It's in the name of your great son, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen.